this passage which contains the blueprint for the family. This is not a difficult passage to understand, but for some it may be hard to swallow. And so it's important to understand the context. This passage really begins back in chapter 5 and verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. And so a meaningful marriage is one of the results of being filled with the Spirit of God. Being in right relationship with your spouse begins with a right relationship with God. And so it takes three to make a marriage. Last time we talked about wives in verses 22 to 24, and the key exhortation there is to be submissive. Today we're going to look at the husbands. Maybe you've heard the joke, if the ideal husband, the ideal wife, the Easter bunny, and Santa Claus were all standing on a street corner together, who would cross the street first when the light changed? Give up. The ideal wife would cross the street first because all the rest are just figments of your imagination. (laughs) Now that's humorous. (laughs) But many today are wondering if it's true. Does an ideal husband exist? Is he just a figment of our imagination? Is he out there? And if so, what does he look like? Well, for the answer to that, we have to come back to the blueprint. And the role of the husband is described in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The husband is the head of the wife. And to help us grasp that, Paul says it's just like Christ and the church. Christ is the head, the church is the body. And so the husband is the head, The wife is the body. You say, well, that's a nice analogy, but what does it mean? And how does it work out in practical terms? Well, Paul answers that in our passage because he describes four responsibilities of a husband. Four things you as head are to be doing for your wife. And those four things are leading, loving, caring, and cleaving. And we'll begin to look at them this morning. The first is leading. That's implicit in the word head. We use it that way today. If I say someone is the head of the army, the head of the class, the head of the department, you understand that they are the leader. Now, in recent years, some have tried to come to this passage and extract the concept of leadership out of the word head, but that can't be done. When it says the husband is the head of his wife, it means that he is the leader. But here's where we run into problems if we're not careful in our understanding of what a leader is. Because when we hear the word head, we think leader. When we hear the word leader, we think it's synonymous with ruler, owner, president, executive, superior. And a lot of men read this passage only to this point, and then they envision that that since they are the head, they're to sit in their office with their feet on their desk, with boss on the door, and they're to bark commands at their wife. But though that may be the world's definition of head, it's not God's definition. In fact, nothing could be further from God's definition of head. You see, headship does not mean that you are superior. Headship means that you are responsible. The husband is God's representative authority in the home. He has the responsibility for himself, for his wife, and for his children. 
God has a chain of authority according to 1 Corinthians 11.3. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. It has nothing to do with equality. In Galatians 3.28 we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God is not superior to Christ. They're equal. The husband is not superior to his wife. They are equal. But God has a chain of authority, and the husband is the head. And the responsibility for the marriage rests on him. Headship doesn't mean that you're to make your wife submit. Some husbands think marriage operates that way. This passage says the wife's job is to submit, and it's our job to see that she does it. No. In fact, if you look at this passage carefully, nowhere in here does it tell you to make your wife submit. Let me tell you something, husbands. If your wife is not submissive to you, it may be that she learned it from your example. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that you are to be submissive to Christ. It says in 1 Peter 2.13, you are be, to be submissive to the government. It says in 1 Peter 2.18, you are to be submissive to your employer. And it says here in Ephesians 5.21, that you are to be submissive to every other believer. In fact, your greatest act of submission is to your wife. So if she looks at you and sees that you're not submissive to Christ, you're not submissive to the government, you cheat on your, your income tax, you run past the speed limit, you're not submissive to your boss, you cheat on your expense accounts, you use the company car for vacations, she's going to have a difficult time being submissive to you. But you see, if you as the husband are submissive to Christ, submissive to God's authority, submissive to other believers, and submissive to your wife, then she's going to feel great security in being submissive to you. And so, husbands, you're the head, which means that you're the leader. But be careful how you define leader, because Christ is our example. We are to lead like he led. Now, that shines a whole different light on this subject, because Christ's leadership was very radically different from the world's leadership. And to show you that, let me have you look at Luke chapter 22 for a moment. Luke chapter 22, and beginning at verse 25. Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Now, the term benefactor means the one who receives the benefits. And that's the way the world's leadership usually operates. People in power use force to enrich themselves at the expense of others. And that's the way some homes operate. The husbands lord it over their wives and children, and they receive all the benefits, all the perks, all the advantages. Meanwhile, the wife and kids come up short. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? 
but I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus didn't lead by sitting in the seat of greatness. Jesus led by kneeling in the place of service. In fact, when he described his own purpose in coming in Matthew 20, 28, he said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And husbands, he calls us to that same pattern of leadership. We are to lead by serving. Now, we have trouble with that because we have trouble putting those two concepts, leader and servant, together. They seem to contradict one another, and yet in God's kingdom, the head is one who expresses this unique blend of leader and servant. Husband, you are called to lead your wife, but you are to lead her as a servant, not a lord. So headship is responsibility. It's not rank. It's sacrifice, not selfishness. It's duty, not domination. Headship is not a license to indulge yourself. It is a calling to empower another human being. Our aim is not to suck the life out of our wives, but to be a source of life to them. You are to seek your wife's best, even at your own expense. And only then are you fulfilling God's calling as head of your family. That's evident from verse 23, because after mentioning that Christ is the head of the church, he says that Christ is the Savior of the body. Now, if you notice carefully, he's mixing metaphors there. You would expect him to say that Christ is the head of the body and Savior of the church, but he doesn't say it that way. He says that Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. Why does he do that? Well, I think he does that because these two terms are really interchangeable in what they mean. Because as Savior, Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. As head, he gives himself as a servant. And so as a leader, you are to follow the model of Christ. Christ didn't use the church. Christ didn't dominate her. He didn't force his leadership on her. On the contrary, he earned the right of leadership by expending himself for his bride and by giving his life. In fact, it's the cross that gave Jesus the right to lead. And in the same way, you as a husband are to earn the right to lead your home. You're to earn that right by dying to your selfishness. And you're to earn that right by willingly giving yourself for your bride. And only then will you be a Christ-like head. And so death to self is always the starting point for leadership because leadership is not a step up it's a step down it's not exalting yourself it's sacrificing yourself and so God is calling us as husbands to be servant leaders being the head of your home is not a place of ease and advantage it is a calling to work and sacrifice and serve Now, wives, if your husband isn't there yet, be patient with us. One of my favorite cartoons is Gary Larson's Farside cartoons, and maybe that says something about the way my mind works. But he had one that had Robin Hood on bended knee, handing a bag full of money to two surprised porcupines. And the caption reads, Historic note. 
Until his life's destiny was further clarified, Robin Hood spent several years robbing from the rich and giving to the porcupines. Some of us as husbands mean well, but we haven't clarified our purpose yet. This passage lays it out for us, and if you're still dealing with that as husbands, I want to help you this morning discover whether you are lording it over your wife or whether you are being a servant leader. I want to look at several areas of your family that are very practical. How about decision-making? The lording leader loves to give orders. He's the boss. He has to have control. He makes all the decisions. Everyone else just carries out his directives. If anybody questions one of his decisions, he just gives another string of commands because he's not looking for questions or suggestions or better ideas. He's only interested in doing things his way. And so there's no flexibility with the lording leader. He comes home at night and says, we're going to eat Mexican food tonight. And his wife says, well, honey, we had, you know, the kids and I had Mexican food for lunch. Can we go to that new Italian place? We're having Mexican food, and that's it. See, discussion for him is a threat. On the other hand, the servant leader seeks to hear what others in the family think. He's always looking for better alternatives, even when they're not his. He's willing to listen because his chief concern is to do what's best for everyone involved. How about the area of understanding your wife's needs? The lording leader knows little about women. He ignores his wife's distinctively feminine needs. In fact, he probably never has really given them much serious thought. When I first got married, my idea of a getaway was to take my wife and go up to St. Louis and watch a ball game. I mean, what better way to get away from things? And one time, as I was preparing one of these trips, I happened to ask her what she would like to do. And she said, I would like to go to the Muni. I said, you mean that place where they have plays? She said, yeah, I'd like to go see My Fair Lady. I said, but the Mets are in town. <laughs> so we went to My Fair Lady and I took my radio. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. The lording leader can't understand why anyone would waste money on flowers. He thinks cards are silly. He thinks perfume stinks. And when he hurts his wife's feelings by being so insensitive, his standard response is women. You see, it's not that way with the servant leader because he accepts the fact that his wife is different. And he doesn't patronize her for it. He doesn't demean her for it. In fact, he studies his wife's needs because he's committed to meeting them. How about the area of conflicts? The lording leader always becomes defensive if his wife challenges his thoughts or his views because he approaches everything as a win-lose situation and he can't stand to be wrong. And he certainly can't stand to admit to his wife that he's wrong. In contrast, the servant leader is interested in what's right rather than who wins. 
He's not a scorekeeper. He's a seeker of truth. And he knows that his wife brings a valuable perspective and sensitivity to many issues that he barely understands. And so he values her input, and together they determine what's right. How about the area of strengths and weaknesses? The lording leader loves to point out the flaws and failures of his wife. In fact, he stays very busy doing so. He tears her down as if criticism could make her a better person. And when company comes over and she's worked hard to prepare a meal, he'll make some comment like, I wish she cooked like this all the time. He calls that teasing, but if you look carefully, she's probably not smiling. By contrast, the servant leader majors on what's right and good in his wife. He's aware of her weaknesses, but he focuses on her assets. He's always affirming her, telling her that she's the most significant person in his life because he knows that that atmosphere of encouragement gives her energy to grow and develop. Let me mention one other area. And I hesitate to mention this one. Household chores. Lording leader comes home and excuses himself from responsibility. He doesn't do dishes. He doesn't pick up laundry. He doesn't cook. He doesn't clean. He doesn't take out trash. And when he's forced to do any of those things, he makes sure everybody knows it's a real sacrifice and something that he would never ordinarily do. But you see, the servant leader, on the other hand, not only does chores, he's sensitive to the schedule of his wife. And he's always monitoring her energy level and taking burdens off of her whenever he can. The servant leader washes his wife's feet and her socks. So husbands, which kind of leader do you tend to be? Do some of the descriptions of the lording leader have an all-too-comfortable fit? I once heard about a young man who decided he was going to serve his wife, and so one day he gave her a day off. And he took their three-year-old son, and as part of his chores, they went shopping for the family. So he went to the grocery store, and he put the three-year-old in the basket, and he started up and down the aisles as he was shopping. And it got about time for the little boy's nap. And so he got really cranky and started screaming and grabbing cans and boxes off the shelf and creating quite a scene in the store. Uh, An older lady, lady was walking behind the father, noticing how he was handling this dilemma. And she was pretty amazed at how calm he remained. And she kept hearing him say, Now, Ronnie, calm down. Ronnie, don't do that. Don't get out of control. Calm yourself, Ronnie. It's going to be all right. Don't do that, Ronnie. Somebody could get hurt. Just a little longer, Ronnie. Hang in there, buddy. Well, when he got up to the checkout, his child was still screaming and throwing a tantrum, and the woman came up behind him, and she couldn't help but tap him on the shoulder, and she said, you know, I just want to tell you I've been watching you, and and this has been a difficult situation. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the way you've handled little Ronnie. The father looked at her with wide eyes, and he said to her, Ma'am, I'm Ronnie. Being a servant doesn't come easy. And sometimes you have to talk your way through it. 
Because leading that way goes against our nature. But see, God is not interested in developing your nature. He's interested in developing his nature in you. Which brings us back to the starting point of leadership. It's death to self. So that you can be alive to God and so that you can be a servant to your wife. First area of responsibility as a head is leading. And you are to lead by serving. Second area is loving. I heard of one wife who said, Our marriage has lasted 20 years because we're both in love with the same man. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. No less than four times in this passage, husbands are told to love their wives. It's very clear that the responsibility for loving lies with the husband. In fact, if you notice this passage, you will find nowhere in this passage where it says that wives are to love their husbands. You say, well, that's because husbands are so lovable. Think again. I think there's a couple reasons why that's the pattern here. Number one is because your marriage is a model of Christ's relationship to the church. The wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so your marriage is to be a model of that relationship. Wives, if you think you have it tough, husbands have it tougher. Because you are to emulate the church, your husband is to emulate Christ. And Christ's priority in that relationship is love. And so the command is given to the husbands to love your wives. But I think there's a second reason, and it really ties in very closely, and that is that love has a creative nature. We can see that in Christ's relationship to the church. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. The church's love is drawn out by the love of Christ. And in the same way, your wife's love is to be drawn out by your love for her. Now, what does that mean? That means if the love has gone out of your marriage relationship, men, the burden is on you. Because your wife loves you back in response to your love. And you are to initiate that love in her by creatively loving her so that it comes back to you. That's where he places the responsibility. You say, well, how am I to love my wife? Well, he tells us we're to love like Christ loved the church. And we can pick out four characteristics of Christ's love for the church in verses 25 to 27. We're going to look at just two of them this morning. The first is that it's active. And what I mean by that is it's not just an emotion. Christ didn't die for us out of some romantic sentiment. He didn't have any illusions. The Bible doesn't say God felt so sentimental that he gave his son. See, Christ's love was not just an emotion. It was an act of his will. It was a commitment. And that's why when he got to the garden and he really saw the whole cost of what his love was going to involve, and when his emotions said, turn back, Christ would have if it was just an emotional love, but he had made a commitment. It was an act of his will, or we might say it was really a laying down of his will because Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. And we as husbands are to love in that same fashion. 
He doesn't say in verse 25, wait till you feel like it. He says, love your wives. And verse 25 is in the form of a command. He is commanding you as husbands to love your wives. So you are to love your wife whether you feel like it or not. Because love is active. Now let me add a little principle here that runs throughout Scripture. And that is that feelings always follow obedience. In every area where God gives us commandments, we can't wait till we feel like it or we'll wait an awful long time. We are to obey God, and after we obey God, the feelings come. That's the case with your wife. When you actively love her, whether you feel like it or not, guess what happens? You start feeling like it because you're being obedient. Love is active, and the second thing I mean by that is that it is not reactive. In other words, it's not based on the worth of your spouse. It's not earned. You see, that's the nature of the world's love. The world says you love somebody because they're physically attractive, they have a great personality, they have wit, they have prestige, they have some positive traits. In other words, your love for another person is based on whether you deem them worthy or not. But you see, when you have that kind of love, it's very fickle. Because when a person loses a certain characteristic, your love, which was based on that characteristic, also disappears. And it's because so many husbands and wives have built their relationship on this kind of love that marriages are falling apart. You see, in verse 25, he doesn't say, love your wife if. He says, love your wife. You say, but you don't know my wife. She's so unlovable. Well, let me ask you this. When did Christ love you? Well, Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Christ loved you and died for you when you were sinners, enemies, unlovely. Perhaps you've heard the story about the couple that got married and they came out of the the chapel and they... They went out and he had a nice carriage with two horses out there and they got in the carriage and everybody was throwing rice and they took off down the road and they got a little ways down the road and one of the horses started bucking. And so he shouted at the horse and said, that's one. They went a little further and the horse started bucking again and he said, that's two. They got a little further down the road and the horse reared up and he said, that's three. And so he reached into the back of the carriage and he pulled out his shotgun and he stepped down and he shot the horse, killed him. He started climbing back into the carriage and his wife said, I can't believe you. What on earth are you doing? And he said, that's one. (laughs) Now, some husbands love with a one, two, three love. I will love you as long as you don't cross this line. You see, that's not love. Because we are to love the way Christ loved the church and Christ drew no line. Circumstances didn't change his love. And that's why one of my favorite passages is Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, where it says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Isn't that comforting? Christ's love is consistent 
even when I'm inconsistent. Christ's love is true even when I'm untrue. Christ's love is faithful even when I'm unfaithful. And husbands, you are to express that same love to your wives. Our love is to be based on fact, not fancy. We are to embrace her faults, her failures, all her unlovely and disagreeable elements, because that's the way Christ's love is. Second thing and final thing this morning I want to point out about our love or Christ's love for the church is that it's sacrificial. Verse 25 says at the end, and he gave himself up for her. Husbands, you don't just love your wife when it's convenient. You love her like Christ did in that you sacrifice yourself. You give your life for her. You give yourself for her. That means you give up a fishing trip. That means you may have to give up a golf game. That means you may have to give up watching a football game. You are to lay your life down for her. You are to die to yourself in order to become a servant to meet her needs. Now, let me tell you two things in closing. Number one, I'll give you a little secret. When you do this, it's irresistible. Right, ladies? You want to be irresistible to your wife? Don't get a new do. Don't get new clothes. Don't become more macho. Lay down your life for her, and you'll be irresistible. Let me tell you a second thing in closing. There's a paradox built in that is a paradox we find throughout Scripture, and it's this. Love that says, what can I get, gets pitifully little. Love that says, what can I give, gets much in return.